You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Data is critical to obviously being accessed by the user and by the application. It's all over the place, and it's hard to secure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a court decision on standing in data breach cases. I've got the story of the city of Baltimore spending nearly a million bucks to upgrade their Stingray. And later in the show, Tim Eads from VArmor. We're talking about why all security professionals need to prioritize data security and observability. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions, With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cumry.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. All right, Ben, why don't you uh, start things off for us this week? We've got a lot to cover. Yeah, so I have a very important uh, case that came down the pike. I read about it from the IAPP website, which is the International Association of Privacy Professionals, kind of a think tank on digital privacy issues based in D.C. Hmm. And they talked about a very interesting case coming out of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals dealing with the issue of standing in data breach cases. Okay. So I'm going to try and do this without getting into the deep legal weeds, just the uh, shallow legal weeds here, because I know (laughs) some of this stuff is not going to be super exciting. But because the Constitution of the United States says that courts can only hear cases and controversies, The Supreme Court has interpreted that as that you actually have to have some stake in the case. Hmm. They won't hear cases that are theoretical or based on some threatened future harm. You actually have to have a concrete, particularized interest in the case. So generally the test for standing is that a person has to have suffered some sort of actual injury. Um, In legalese, that's called injury in fact. There has to be a connection between the alleged action and the injury. So whomever you're suing, they actually have to have caused your injury. And uh, there's this factor called redressability, meaning the court actually has to be able to redress the uh, harm that came from the defendant's action. Hmm. So this becomes really interesting in data breach cases because frequently when there's been a data breach, the harm hasn't been particularized yet as soon as the breach happens. Uh, But the victim still wants to sue whomever uh, was negligent with their data. So let's say you're a federal government employee. You hear about the OPM hack. You don't know if your particular data has been stolen, uh, has been, somebody's been trying to steal your identity. 
you don't know if you've suffered any sort of monetary injury, but you're still really PO'd at OPM for losing right. your personal information. You want to make a case that you have been harmed. Exactly, exactly. So the Supreme Court uh, in 2021 made standing in these types of data breach cases much more difficult to establish. It was a case called TransUnion LLC versus Ramirez. And they said that the threat of future harm does not provide standing for a damages claim in a database, uh, in a uh, data breach uh, case. Hmm. So that seemed to be a big blow to plaintiffs who want to get some type of legal relief after their data has been stolen. So in comes the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which is based in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, also the Virgin Islands, mm. uh, in case you ever want to travel there. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a side story that we won't take the time to explain there. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. I'm sure there's history. <laughs> I don't know who decided to draw the maps in, in that way, but right. it is kind of interesting. Uh, but the Third Circuit had to consider a data breach case in light of that new Supreme Court test. And they developed a three-part test of their own that I think does pave the way for plaintiffs to bring these claims, even if they haven't already suffered a particularized injury. Hmm. So first, you have to establish that the risk of future identity theft or fraud fraud is sufficiently imminent. Uh, So it's something that can't be unduly speculative. It has to be a type of harm that is almost certain to happen. But the key is it doesn't have to have happened yet. Hmm. Uh, so if somebody's classified or if somebody's personal information has been stolen and it's likely to end up on the dark web and you can prove that it's likely to end up on the dark web and be used by cyber criminals, then you can satisfy that part of the test. Hmm. Second, the harm has to be concrete. And when they look at concreteness, They're looking at how that has been traditionally defined in American courts. Uh, It has to be some type of harm sufficiently analogous to harms long recognized at common law. So things like the disclosure of private uh, information, which has been categorized at common law with our English ancestors as a concrete injury, which is promising for the plaintiffs here. Hmm. Uh, And then finally, uh, you, the, a court will look at whether the plaintiff had alleged separate harms in addition to the substantial risk that would qualify as concrete. So, for example, in this case, uh, the plaintiff had already experienced a type of injury in that she suffered emotional distress and was able to show that she incurred significant therapy costs uh, from having to deal with the, the um, outcome of this, of this data breach. Hmm. So... The court ended with, I think, what is a broad statement that indicates a potential path forward for plaintiffs here, that given that intangible harms like the publication of personal information can qualify as concrete because plaintiffs cannot be forced to wait until they have sustained that harm before they can sue, the risk of identity theft or fraud constitutes injury in fact. Hmm, That's interesting. Yeah. So the real upshot here is at least in this circuit, there is a path forward if you've been the victim of a data breach just because you can't come to court and prove that you've already suffered some type of financial harm that doesn't preclude you from bringing a case. Great day for uh, lawyers out there (laughs) who are now going to be able to bring a whole different class of of cases in this circuit. Is this kind of like... uh... I don't know. I think of like a defamation sort of thing where um, you can say there's, you know, potential loss of 
of uh, income because you said something bad about me, you know, that sort of thing. Right. It's a threat of reputational harm. Right, uh, right. In defamation cases, you actually have to show in court that it's likely or, or likely enough that that harm would actually occur, mm-hmm. which is why they consider things like who is the speaker, how how significant is the speaker's reach, how significant is the ability that the person accused of defamation would be able to actually tarnish somebody's reputation? Mm-hmm. I think the same things are going into uh, consideration in this case. It's how likely is it, based on the particular circumstances, that there is going to be a concrete and particularized injury? But what's significant is you don't have to prove that the injury has already happened uh, because that's really hard to prove, especially in the early stages of a data breach. Just the nature of a data breach means that it kind of goes into the indefinite future uh, because the data is out there. Uh, it's no longer protected. So whomever gets a hold of the data, uh, whether it's uh, the individuals who obtained it in the first place or whether it's sold on the dark web, you don't know when it's going to be used. Uh, so I think... If this court hadn't developed this test, you could see a scenario where somebody's just sitting around and waiting for there to be some type of monetary harm that they can prove in court. And I don't think courts want to force that to have to happen, uh, which I I think is the rationale behind this case here. What do you make of it? I mean, is this good? I do think it's good. I mean, from the perspective of if you think that people who have suffered data breaches should be entitled to some judicial relief— especially if uh, the fiduciary, the person holding the data, was negligent in some way. After that TransUnion Supreme Court case, it really seemed like there wasn't a path forward. Now, again, this is only one circuit, uh, and circuits have kind of been all over the place on this issue. Mm. It's a pretty big circuit. It's not New York and it's not D.C., but when you have some big mid-Atlantic states where a lot of media members live, like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, where the Third Circuit is, is located— Uh, I think it could get enough attention that it might be persuasive to other circuits, particularly the way they developed this three-part test. I think tests are are persuasive because you can actually have a way of measuring whether a plaintiff has satisfied the requirements. Hmm. Uh, So it's preliminarily very significant, and I think a, a positive step. We'll have to see if other circuits adopt it. And if the Supreme Court, which is not very friendly to plaintiffs in any kind of civil suit, Mm -hmm. um, for decades now they've been making it harder uh, for people to sue uh, by creating more particularized requirements for things like standing. Uh, Whether the Supreme Court is just going to say this is not compliant with our our own case law, you went rogue here, um, Mm. we're not going to allow this to happen. Mm. Um, but this is a really, really important first step and a potential path forward for these types of cases. Hmm. I, I, I can't help wondering what kind of can of worms this opens because, I mean, uh, this is crossing that line of, of, of being able to, uh, to, to claim damage on the potential, not the, the actual Right. So isn't that a fundamental element of of where we've been before this? Yeah, I think the way the court is defining the test is that you don't have to have suffered harm to be able to allege some type of particularized injury if the circumstances are such that that injury is overwhelmingly likely. Hmm. So 
when you have a case where the hacker is unknown, you don't know whether your information is going to be released, uh, you don't know what data has been compromised, it's going to be very hard to bring a suit even under this test. Mm-hmm. But here, a specific group in this case had taken credit for the hack. It was undisputed that sensitive data was taken, and the plaintiff alleged based on uh, research that she commissioned from a cyber intelligence firm that her data was going to be published or already had been published on the dark web. Hmm. Uh, And another factor, and they looked at uh, previous court cases from other circuits, is that these particular hackers had already shared compromised information uh, on the dark web in the past. So there Hmm. was some at least basis to believe that they would do so again. So you can't, this, this, this isn't going to be a case where every single person who gets a notification saying, hey, your data's been breached, can go into court the next day and win a big lawsuit. I see. As much as the plaintiff's lawyers and the trial lawyers would like that to be true, <laughs> that's not the case. It's going to have to be dependent on the facts uh, at hand, whether it's a hacker that's high profile enough that people know about it, uh, whether you can actually prove that your information was stolen, um, whether you can hire some type of forensics team to see whether your data is out there on the web already, those types of things. So it's not going to be a free-for-all where, you know, oh, one of the credit agencies was breached uh, and I got a credit report from there six years ago. I'm going to get a million dollars. Like, that's that's not what's happening here. I see. All right. Well, that is an interesting development. Uh, We will have a link to that story in the show notes. My story this week comes from the Baltimore Banner, which uh, I will note is uh, Baltimore's newest news publication. It's great. If you live in the Baltimore area and they are not paying us to say this, it's a great (laughs) source of news for uh, local criminal justice stuff and politics in Baltimore. Yeah, it's good to see a new organization taking a run at local news uh, because obviously, you know, that's been hit hard uh, this past decade or so. So this is a story by Justin Fenton, and uh, I know you're going to roll your eyes, Ben, because this is one of our shiny objects here on the Caveat Podcast. The Baltimore police are poised to ramp up cell phone tracking with purchase of new $920,000 device. Stingray, ding, 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 ding. (laughs) The Baltimore police, they're getting themselves a new stingray, (laughs) shiny new stingray. So uh, this is interesting. Evidently, the old stingray that they had uh, wasn't capable of uh, simulating 5G networks. And when that wouldn't do. <laughs> it's like when an actual stingray loses its its stinger. They cut it off when it goes to the aquarium. It's lost its its impact, its sting. Yeah. So uh, what the police representative, uh, Lieutenant Habib Kim, told the Baltimore Banner that uh, it's been 10 to 15 years since they've upgraded their stingray. Uh, and so they have a new stingray uh, coming along here. I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to... Uh, maybe take stock here of where we stand with these cell site simulators. Um, ben, just for folks who might be uh, recent listeners, we haven't talked about this in a while. What exactly do these things do? Sure. So they simulate a cell phone tower. So they trick every phone within a ge- geographic area into transmitting their location data. Uh, as if your phone was trying to locate the nearest cell tower, it's actually transmitting to 
a simulated uh, cell site location, mm-hmm. uh, which is this so-called Stingray device. I should note that they're generally called uh, cell site simulators. It's like calling tissues Kleenex. Right. Stingray was one brand of it, um, but they actually are using a different brand now, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of constitutional issues here. The law enforcement historically never got a warrant to obtain data uh, from Stingray devices. Uh, and it was a very effective law enforcement tool because you could peg somebody's location pretty clearly uh, if you had information on on their cell phone without getting a warrant. Mm-hmm. So there was a very prominent case that made it all the way up to the Maryland Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in Maryland, at least it is now. Um, they're thinking of changing their name, Maryland voters, as you'll see <laughs> on your sample, va- uh, sample ballots. Uh, but they ruled in 2016 that the Fourth Amendment precluded the use of these self, uh, cell site simulators without a warrant. Uh, And the state legislature passed a bill in 2020 that limits the use of technology, including prohibiting law enforcement from using this to obtain the content of communications and spelling out specific criteria about when law enforcement is actually able to to make use of this. There are now restrictions. You need a warrant, according to the Court of Appeals, and it can only be used under a set number of enumerated circumstances. So it has to be for things that are somewhat more serious. Uh, It's still a very intrusive surveillance technique, especially when you combine it with some of the other surveillance methods used by Baltimore police. Um, I just finished rewatching The Wire. (laughs) And that show was was last aired almost 15 years ago now. Right, right. Um, But so much of it was about the capabilities of the Baltimore. I know it's a fictional show, but it was very realistic. But so so much of it was the capabilities of Baltimore police, Baltimore law enforcement, in intercepting communications and getting knowledge on their targets through the use of creative surveillance tools. Mm -hmm. And this is just one of them. I mean, you can see how it would be very useful for something like a robbery or a home invasion where maybe you want to see whether uh, an individual suspect who's done a a spree of robberies is going to commit the next robbery. You track their, they get a warrant to track their cell phone, figure out, uh, where they are, which cell phone towers uh, or f- cell site simulators they're transmitting data to, uh, and take the investigation from there. Uh, so it's not as unrestricted uh, as it once was, and I think that's in large part due to the court decision and the effort of state legislatures. And there are still some civil liberties concerns. They talked about how the city council president in Baltimore was concerned about safeguarding the use of these simulators. Uh, And the deputy police commissioner said um, that the equipment is being kept behind two separate biometric doors. It can't be stolen. Uh, Hmm. It's in a secure garage, and two officers are needed to use uh, the device. It's kind of like turning the the nuclear keys on a submarine. (laughs) Uh, And there's also now reporting requirements uh, on annual usage that have to go to the governor's office on crime prevention, youth, and victim services. Mm -hmm. Um, Those aren't public reports, uh, but certainly... It's useful information for the executive branch in uh, Maryland. So uh, it's it's very interesting that they're purchasing new devices to try and upgrade and modernize. It shows that they still find this to be a valuable law enforcement tool, even despite these legal restrictions. Right. I mean, a million bucks, right? That, that's not chump change. It's not. I mean, there are a lot of things a municipality could do with a million bucks. 
air conditioning and city schools. That would be nice. <laughs> oh, you, you, you. I twisted the knife you, there. You, you, you old lefty. <laughs> I know. You couldn't help yourself, could you? Sorry if, that, if that's overly political. If you think that Baltimore city schools should not have air conditioning, <laughs> no, I, um, I'm with you. I just think your 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 rhetorical style there, Ben, perhaps leaves a little bit desired. <laughs> I know. Leave all of your complaints uh, in the reviews for our show. That's right. I will caveat at the Cyberwire. Yeah, exactly. You know, the Baltimore police say that uh, they use this not just for uh, bad folks out there, that uh, they, they cite an example that there was a person who was threatening to harm themselves and they uh, they were trying to locate this person and the cell company couldn't able to determine where they were. Uh, and because the police didn't have a 5G version of this device, they weren't able to track the person in time, and the person had taken their life. Um, that's a story. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, there are, there are going to be examples like that for right. sure. Right. Uh, and I think that does at least seemingly justify spending money on a device like this. Yeah. Uh, especially if it has been valuable in those types of scenarios. You have things like silver, silver alerts, amber alerts, um, where you might know something about the identity of the person missing or the person who has taken a child, for example. And certainly a cell site simulator would be useful in those circumstances. So it's not like some other surveillance tools where it seems so out of the ordinary and abnormal and disproportionate to the actual threats. Mm -hmm. You do understand why there's some use for this. And when it comes to Baltimore, I always mention this. I mean, Baltimore does have a very serious crime problem. Yeah. Uh, and so I understand from the police department's perspective, trying everything that they can to help alleviate that problem. This is just another tool. Uh, and 5G technology is now, you know, old enough that you really <laughs> are going to have to upgrade everything to be interoperable with 5G devices. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that they would do that in, in these circumstances. The thing that gets my goat about this or that I have trouble getting past is how the FCC is deferential to law enforcement when it comes to these devices, right? You and I can't go out there with some kind of rogue transmitter that's going to cause interference to every cell phone user within, you know, X number of yards, basically make them dump their calls, right? Right. <laughs> but, you know, what if I'm calling 911, and they fire one of these things up and it dumps my call. And now, you know, there, you can see the problem there. Uh, and this is where, if, to me, the FCC should be saying, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, <laughs> your your it, device does what? Uh, but but I've, I've asked people at, you know, at the FCC or, or uh, former FCC folks about this directly. And they've told me that. This is a case where the FCC is generally deferential to law enforcement uh, and the, the DOJ and the military. When it comes to these sorts of things, they feel as though public safety outweighs the FCC's um, mandate to enforce this kind of thing. I don't feel comfortable with that. And maybe that's just a me thing, but— I don't think it's just a you thing. Um, I certainly understand the perspective from the FCC. You don't want to be seen as crossing local— state or federal law enforcement, right? they're coming to you saying, we need this to solve crimes. I mean, 
in every one of these cop TV shows, somebody goes to the relevant agency and it's a bureaucratic mess right. and they can't get the information <laughs> they need. The heroic detectives are saying, You've got blood on your hands, Jenkins. Exactly. <laughs> Dig through those files. Uh, and there, there's something to that. I mean, I... If there were a scenario where, like the one you described, where somebody was threatening self-harm and we weren't able to get information because the FCC exerted its jurisdictional power, I think a lot of people would be upset. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying yeah. that's that's the perspective, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Again, that's from the uh, Baltimore banner. Definitely worth uh, checking out. We would love to hear from you. If there's a story you'd like us to cover, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Tim Eads. He is from VArmor. And we were talking about uh, his notion that security professionals need to set some priorities when it comes to data security and observability. Here's my conversation with Tim Eads. So as we look at data security, we have to look at kind of like the evolution of the problem. So, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, we were all looking at application security. And about five, seven years ago, we started talking about workload security. And now we're talking about data security. But let's let's break that apart a little bit. So one of our customers at Viama is a great example. Five, six, seven years ago, they had 35 workloads per app. But increasingly, the workloads have been disaggregated from uh, the, the application. So now they've gone from 35 workloads per app to 65 workloads per app. Same number of apps, in this case, 4,100, but there's more and more workloads. And the same principle is actually happening to data. Data is now more disaggregated from the app and more distributed than ever before. You could have data uh, residing in AWS, in Snowflake, in a Hadoop cluster. And remember, d- data serves in this particular example in two particular ways. You know, the access, you know, is Dave accessing this piece of data in Snowflake? And then he's accessing the data inside a Hadoop cluster. And also the application is also using that data to perform a service you know, to you, the user, and eventually to other apps, right? So you've got app to data and user to data, and data is more distributed than ever before. So as that data traverses the infrastructure to get served up to the user or to the app, things get complicated because they go through middle systems, they go through middleware like um, IBM MQ series or Kafka or middle systems. And as they go through that, sometimes they lose their headers and they create this new attack surface uh, as they lose their some of their address book. So data is more distributed. 
data is critical to, to obviously being accessed by the user and by the application. It's all over the place, and it's hard to secure because one of the problems you have is classification of the data itself at the object level. Then you have to know, okay, it's going to traverse the infrastructure. So then you have all these different types of things. It's a difficult problem to solve. Some people say, well, then I'm going to encrypt it. Okay, that's great. But you still need to search inside it. So then you have technologies like you know, homomorphic encryption. But you know, it's a difficult problem to solve. It's a critical problem to solve because if you're going through digital transformation, it's completely impossible without understanding data security. How much of this, if any, is because we're in this world now where data storage is is so inexpensive as to be practically free. So it, it, in my mind, that leads to a bit of a pack rat mentality. Yeah, people are storing more and more data. Just It's like the water table just goes up and up mm-hmm. and up. A bit like the national debt. <laughs> it just goes up and up and up. And, you know, and it's being stored in more and more and more locations. And you know, part of that's driven by regulators that you're saying that, hey, you need to store data for longer periods of time. Other challenges, obviously, is that it's a, it's a natural thing, like you said, because it's so cheap, so you will store it. Um, and then the the disparity of it, like I said, as it's so uh, in so many different locations, in a large organization especially, knowing what it is, where it is, who should access it, who should not have access to it, and then as the application pulls it, will it see it? Can it be authenticated? Think of your attack service. Think of ransomware as it relates to data security. If you have data in all these different locations, you need to understand what they are, you know, what's the classification of it. You know, who should access it is based on classification. There's all these companies like Dimitri's company out there, Big ID, doing cataloging. You know, it's it's a real challenge. And the attack service is, is there, it's real, it can get compromised. The regulators have caught on. So if you talk to some of the leading guys in some of the banks, they are now, they, they call them MRAs, matters that requires attention, and matters that call then MRIAs, matters that require immediate attention. There are more and more regulations coming out around data security, data provenance, data dependency mapping. And so those types of regulators are coming, and you're going to see a lot of acceleration in the deployments of data security technologies. Help me understand how this works at scale. So in other words... If I double my amount of data, does my effort double? Does it quadruple? Is it halved? What's that relationship? Well, you know, in the old world, you would say if you double, if the the more data you store, you know, does your workload double with it? And you would probably say yeah. yes. But in the world now of automation and some of the tools that are available, you know, there's a great company called Okira that does data classification. It's all SaaS-based technology. It's really, really smart. There's a way to do this through automation and simplicity. And I think that's also you know, the way forward because you, you've got to abstract the complexity of the problem from the user so that the, that the time to value and the automation of value is something that, that can be realized very quickly. And so this is actually one of the benefits of the pandemic. I think a lot of people, because you know, a lot of technology companies were, just like every company, were sat at home behind Zoom calls and knowing that they're not going to do as many in-person customer service meetings, lots and lots and lots of people really focus on simplicity and intuitiveness and everything else. And certainly that's been a constant drive at Viama, but I see it across much of my portfolio. The drive for simplicity, intuitiveness, SaaS-based, and automated value really can solve this problem. 
Do organizations who are starting up now have an advantage that they're, you know, they're not bringing along legacy baggage? Uh, organizations as security companies or, or new companies? Well, I'm just thinking of a company who in their day-to-day operations have to be stewards of data and do so securely. As you say, you know, through the pandemic, we've there's been a shift and there's a lot of modern tools that are designed from the outset to handle this. Yeah, and, and so the way I look at it, if, if you're born now as a new company and you're I know, a digital bank, it's Dave and Tim's digital bank, and you're mm. running everything in the cloud, your ability to leverage cloud-native technologies and more intuitive technologies and more automated technology is is a lot lot easier. If if it's Dave and Tim's bank that we've been around for forty years or fifty years and we have you know data centers from thirty years ago, this problem is complicated and it's difficult and it's long to long time to solve it. And you got to work out how much time you spend trying to solve that problem instead of investing in the future of you know, becoming a digital bank. So. Yeah, I, I think you're right. If it's a new enterprise, you can solve it easier and quicker if you're using clouds and cloud native technologies. If you're one of those organizations like the majority in the world, which are hybrid and they have legacy technologies too, there's a road there. You have to start down the road. The regulators will tell you to start down that road. But doing it right in public cloud first, it's the right place to start. Where do you suppose we're headed with this? And, and if you look towards the horizon, what do you see? I look towards the horizon around data security as it's both scary uh, on one side from an attack service perspective, the lack of knowledge and the lack of classification, the lack of security around it is a little scary to me. On the other side, I do look at the new technologies that are coming along to to address it, are scaling and are doing it in a new and automated way, like I said. On the flip side, I guess the real driver behind it is also the regulators are really pushing for it and, and pushing for better knowledge and observability around who is accessing their data and who's not and who should. I look forward to the future with nervousness on one side. On the, if you like the angel on one side, you know, you're like, this is going to be great because you know, we've got great tools and we've got great regulators and pushing everybody to, to deploy it. On the devil side, the attack service is enormous and very exposed. And, and is is that where we stand today? I mean, when you look at the, the organizations that you work with, to what degree are they on top of this? What's, what's the state of things? Well, it starts with recognizing the problem. And so I think over the last you know, three or four years, it's become more and more of a recognized problem. It wasn't three or four years ago that the data was that distributed, that, that the data is that exposed because it wasn't ca- classified correctly, it wasn't cataloged correctly. That wasn't there four years ago. No way. So now I think the recognizing, you know, the the understanding of the problem is there. It's more broadly known. It's I wouldn't say it's understood, but you see, you know, chief data officers, chief data security officers. So it's it's emerging. Um, it's recognized by the regulators, like I keep saying. But I think it's something that over the next five seven years, this is going to be a topic that's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. It's going to get more to the top of everybody's mind. And like like I said, 15 years ago, you talked about app security and everybody was doing readouts about to their board of directors with a CISO program about, hey, let me tell you about my app security and where am I vulnerable by my apps. They will talk about data security for the next decade.
Ben, what do you think? It was a really interesting conversation. I hadn't thought about, uh, as much about the observability issue mm-hmm. where you don't know where your data goes, uh, especially if you're using some type of cloud service. It goes into the ether and you still have some level of responsibility over that data. And I think it's going to change the culture within organizations when they realize that, uh, especially for those using things like legacy systems, that this data is getting out there and they don't know where it is and and they don't have uh, eyes in the sky on it. So I thought that was a really interesting interview. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Tim Eads for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Listening.